Amen. Amen. Thank you. Give somebody a hug before you're seated today. Let me tell you what we want to do this morning. We're going to change the service up a little bit from first service. I realized that we had so much celebration and so much to talk about. Um, I couldn't do justice to the outline first service, so I'm going to handle it a little differently second service. I felt like I was just so rushed and I didn't feel like I was doing justice to the message. So what I want to do is tell you to take this message home. Let me explain what I had intended to do, and then I'll tell you what we're going to do. Um, I had intended to explain to you what it means to build godly generations. That's our theme for 2020. You see it on the screen over in Main Auditorium. You guys see it on the wall behind the baptistry. We are asking God to help us have faith, to believe Him, to build godly generations. We are basing this um, on the Ten Commandments. The ten, I mean, it's not just a series of messages on the Ten Commandments. We've done that three or four times over the years, and I've enjoyed it, but that's not what we're after. We're going a little bit deeper. We're looking at the Ten Commandments, and we're seeing that there are ten foundational words, ten foundational ideas behind those Ten Commandments. And we want to go a little deeper than just a surface study of those ten uh, commandments, those ten words, and we're going to look at the, the, the idea behind those commandments. In other words, we're not just going to do a sermon on honor your father and your mother. We're going we're to look at what's behind that. Now, you have those ten words listed on your outline. We're not going to go over those today, but... If I, if I did it well enough for you to follow, you'll understand that there is one commandment, one word, one idea that we want to focus on every month beginning in February going through November. Um, now that does not mean that we're going to preach every Sunday on the Ten Commandments, uh, you know, between now and Thanksgiving. That's not, that's not what it means at all. It means that every month there will be an emphasis on an idea or a word. Um, the first commandment will be the focus of February, the second commandment of March, third commandment of April. Um, I may only preach one sermon about that topic that month. Right now it's set up to be the first Sunday of every month, uh, Lord willing. Um, I'll talk to you about that key word. There may be a couple of months where I spend two or three weeks on the concept. There may be uh, months where I just spend that one sermon but Pastor Justin's, um, I'm sorry, my brain is fried. Prayer priorities, yeah, yeah. I could remember the word prayer, and that's all I could remember. But Pastor Justin's prayer priorities will probably be focused on that topic all week. So, I mean, all month. So it'll be a time that month it's focused on that, but it won't be the only thing we talk about by a long shot. Uh, that'll begin in February. So those are the 10 foundational words that we'll be talking about um, beginning in February. Next Sunday, I want to talk about one more idea of encountering God. Uh, you know, we, we spent five Sundays talking about encounters last year. I want to kind of refresh you on the idea of encounters because I believe this is a year of real encountering of the Holy Spirit. 
So it's kind of a review and a reminder and a get set. And then those two Sundays that we talked about, um, about um, the celebration of life, I want to remind you, as I said earlier, and as Mike, boy, Mike did such a great job. I don't know if, I don't know if Mike's in here or the other, no, he's on his retreat uh, with his leaders this weekend. But Mike did a phenomenal job. Um, it's, we're not trying to make a political Sunday out of this. That's, that's not where we're trying to go. And as we said, we're not trying to put shame or guilt on anybody that has had a struggle with the issue of abortion through the years. It's going to be very redemptive, but it is important for us to understand why we believe what we believe. And then on the second Sunday, we want to talk about how we can make a pro-life message a positive message. Um, taking it out of the political arena, but then putting it into the moral and spiritual arena. So I think it's going to be a great couple of Sundays. You say, well, why have we got to come together? Well, it's as I said, some things are just easier said once. Some things are easier said in one setting to everybody than to keep repeating it. So that's what we're after. So the rest of the outline is something that you can look at the principle that I want to talk about today is that God wants glory on your house. We're talking about building godly generation, homes of honor, uh, glory on your house. Um, God, there, there are four things in your outline that I'm going to just mention right now. I'm not going to preach those things, but you can go over it. Um, number one, we believe that God, you don't have to write this down, it's in your notes, that God wants to cover his people with glory. Um, he wants to, to cover his people with glory. Now we know that he said he won't give his glory to another. We know that he said the glory is his and not ours. But when he said things like, I won't give my glory to another, when you read the whole setting, he's talking about idols. He's talking about false gods. He said, my glory is not going to go there, and no man will take my glory. But God is willing to cover us with his glory. He's willing to let us be participants of his glory. The second thing that the outline that you've got tells us is that he wants to reveal his glory as we worship and serve him. Now, guys, that's real important, and I'll tell you why. A lot of times we turn into Pentecostal groupies, we'll follow manifestations or we'll follow revivals. Don't get me wrong, I think there's a time you go to a revival. I was set free years ago at the James Robinson Bible Conference because I saw life in that conference. And, and I, I didn't have life and I didn't have victory, so I went to where life and victory was. There's nothing wrong with following at the leading of the Holy Spirit. But be careful that you don't follow as a groupie. Well, I'm hearing this is the big thing and this is the big move now. And that way you lose your roots in a church. Uh, you, need, you need to understand that God's glory comes not as we chase the glory, but God's glory comes as we worship Him and serve Him. I gave you verses. That's the context for His glory to come. The third thing is that God's glory, he wants us to host it well. We're not in charge of it. We're not in control of it. Uh, Abraham Lincoln talked about a political problem. He said it's sort of like having a tiger by the ears. You think you've got it, but you don't know how to let go of it. 
and uh, we, we don't want to try to govern. We don't want to try to control the glory of God. It, it's like having a tiger by the ears. You may have it. You may think you're in control, but you don't know how to let go of it. That We don't want to do anything like that. We want to host well the presence of God. In fact, a missionary to Japan told me this. He was talking about the Japanese, the, the Christian community is very small. But he said they have such an, a, a profound respect for God in their services for this reason. He said in our King James Bible, it says that the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. And we understand that. We understand that that means when we praise God, he comes and all of that's true. But he said in the Japanese Bible that he preaches from, that passage that says the Lord inhabits the praises of his people reads like this. When God's people praise him, it creates a throne in their midst upon which he sits. Think about that. When we praise and worship God, we create a place that invites him to come in and dwell among us. So we have to host well his glory. And the fourth thing that I want you to understand is that he wants his glory not only to fill his house, but he wants his glory to fill our homes as well. You remember the story of Obed-Edom where Obed hosted the Ark of the Covenant. David had run into some problems. He didn't know what to do with it, so he left it at the house of Obed-Edom. And the scripture says that everything concerning the house of Obed-Edom began to prosper because the presence of God was there. So he wants to cover us with his glory. He brings his glory to us as we worship him, as we serve him. We understand that we must host his presence well. We're not in control of it. We don't manipulate it. And he wants his glory to be on our house, not just his house. And that sets the foundation for these 10 key words that will build godly generations. Now I want to say one more thing and then I'm going to leave the outline and just say a couple of things that are on my heart. Um, you say, what does it mean, glory on my house? Well, the word house, orkos, um, not to be confused with onas, which is wine. Uh, I had somebody do a little study in another church and said, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, I've, I've tried to figure out what it means, glory on your onas. And I said, that's glory on your wine. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, uh, oikos, your house. Um, and the word the bayith and oikos are the Hebrew and Greek words that mean basically the same thing. When we talk about your house, there are four areas. You don't need to write this down. It's in your notes. But number one, when God talks about glory on your house, first of all, he's talking about on your physical dwelling, your house of brick and mortar, you know, the house. Uh, one passage says when it was heard that Jesus was in the house, that meant he was in that structure over there. The second way that house is used is your circle of relationship. If I'm to talk about the house of Corey or the house of Henderson, I'm not just talking about, I might not be just talking about his home, his physical building, but I might be talking about all the relationships that make up Corey's life. His influence on his neighbors, his influence on other family members, his, his influence in his community, okay? So God wants to bless your residence. He wants to bless your circle of relationships. Number three, 
the third way it's used is our responsibilities that we manage. You know, the Bible spoke of Joseph and said that he was over the house of Potiphar and the house of Pharaoh. That doesn't mean he was in their house necessarily taking care of plumbing and electrical or whatever. It meant that all the responsibilities of Potiphar's house, all the responsibilities of Pharaoh's house, Joseph was in charge of those responsibilities. And the fourth thing is realm of influence. Whatever you influence by your life is your house. So God says, I want there to be a glory in your life where you live, in your relationships. I want to bless your responsibilities. And I want you to have an influence throughout the community. And I want to bless all of this with my glory. Now, with that being said, I want to give you an encouragement to help you pursue this, okay? Uh, number one, uh, I've never, in all the years that I've been a pastor here, I don't know that I've ever felt we were entering into a year with a sense of clarity like we are right now. I believe, as one person on staff put it this week, we're entering this year with our eyes wide open. God has told us what he's going to do. He's told us what to watch out for. And, and pastor, this person said, I believe that we just have to obey God because he said, this is what I intend to do. And I agreed. But at the same time, I don't know that we've ever entered a year with people from the very get-go feeling such a sense of opposition and depression and oppression. Now, it's not like last year where we said 2019 was, or 2018 was rough and be encouraged. 2019 will be rough too. You know, it's not like that. We, we're, we're entering 2020 prophetically with our eyes open. The Word of God is going to come alive to us as never before. Uh, His purposes in our life will be expanded as never before. But we already feel a pushback from the enemy. Um, we feel conflict. We feel chaos. Um, we just feel stuff. And let me explain to you what I think is happening. This is the young congregation, I think. Let me see if I can see you. Oh, oh, oh yes. Yes, sanctuary. I'm talking to you. Yes. The, the young congregations. But I don't know. I don't know how many of you have ever heard of Washing Machine Charlie in World War II. Anybody? I think I hear, I think I see a couple of hands. Washing Machine Charlie in, in World War II was a nickname that the Marines on Guadalcanal and the soldiers on Guadalcanal gave to a ploy by the Japanese to win that battle. Guadalcanal was, a, I, I cannot overemphasize how important that battle was in the South Pacific in World War II. It was one of the earliest battles as the Marines and, and, and uh, the Army, with the support of the Navy, began island hopping. And what island hopping meant in World War II is that the American forces, allied forces, would take island by island in the Pacific, building a network of air bases to eventually invade Japan. And it was a very systematic, very well thought out, but very tedious, very dangerous, very bloody conflict. 
And from August of 1942 to February of uh, 1943, the American forces were engaged in this horrendous battle at a place called Guadalcanal. And um, the American air base was Henderson Field. Uh, if you ever saw the TV show Baba, Black Sheep or Black Sheep Squadron, um, that's, that's where it was set. And the Japanese knew that they were outmanned and outgunned by Americans. In fact, that's why they planned out the Pearl Harbor attack so thoroughly and, and, and so intensively. They knew the only chance they had was to wipe out the American fighting forces early because we were so much bigger and, and, uh, than they were. And even after the success of Pearl Harbor, you guys with me out there? Okay, even after the success of Pearl Harbor, uh, General Yamamoto said, I'm afraid, even though we've won, he said, I'm afraid we have just awakened a sleeping giant. And that's pretty well what happened. But Japan realized we've got to do everything on the ground, we've got to do everything in the air, we've got to do everything in the, in the water that we can possibly do to slow down the Americans, to keep them from putting this island-hopping strategy together so that they can invade our homeland. And when asked what the most effective thing they did was, the Japanese leadership smiled and said, washing machine Charlie. That's what the Americans called their psychological game. Now, don't, don't let me lose you. This is important because I believe this is what the enemy is doing. Washing Machine Charlie was a solo reconnaissance plane. It didn't have heavy armaments. Some of them could carry one bomb, but it didn't have good systems. The bombs almost always missed their target because it was a reconnaissance plane. It, wasn't a, um, it didn't have bomb sites and all of that sort of thing. So Washing Machine Charlie almost always missed with his bomb. And sometimes the, the Japanese pilots would basically hold souped-up hand grenades out the sides and just drop them, hoping to get lucky. But I tell you what Washing Machine Charlie did. He would come over at night. Now, I'm sorry, i got to give you one more little bit of historical information. Night fighting was not nearly as developed then as it is now. For the most part, our troops didn't fight at night uh, anything technically because the, the, the abilities that we all had was just so minimal. But the, the Washing Machine Charlie guy would fly over about bedtime at night and he was called washing machine Charlie all the enemies were called Charlie because his motor was deliberately set out of sync to sound like a washing machine instead of that beautiful uh, Mitsubishi hum of the engine it sounded like a washing machine that was falling apart and what it would do it's so the, it, it would create a vibration that was so bad, it woke up everybody on the ground. They couldn't sleep. Even though they eventually realized bombs weren't going to be coming from that plane, it disrupted their sleep because they didn't know what was going to happen. And the reason Washing Machine Charlie was so uh, successful is it disturbed the rest and prevented refreshing. Now you think about that a minute. It disturbed rest and prevented refreshing. 
In fact, it was so effective that the biggest problem the Marines said they had in Guadalcanal was Washing Machine Charlie because they could not rest for the next battle. And it was so effective that a special uh, team was given the assignment of developing night fighter technology so they could send planes up to take care of Washing Machine Charlie. For like 18 months, they worked to get some kind of technology that would allow night fighting. That's how important it was. Now, loved ones, can I tell you that is exactly what the enemy wants to do in our lives? He knows that he's outgunned. Our eyes are open. We know what God has said to us. But the enemy right now seems to be focused on disturbing rest and preventing refreshing. What I am amazed at is the number of people that find a reason for an offense the, the enemy, I'm talking about in the church, outside the church, it's because of the age of rage in which we live. We, 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 I know I sound like an old broken record, and I am old, but I'm not broken. Um, there was a time when politics were discussed. There was a time when differences were debated but what we live in now is an age of rage where whoever doesn't agree with you, we have a tendency to just call them a hater. I hate that phrase. That's a joke. Well, that one's lost. Okay. Um, the, one of the ways you can tell a political system is broken down is when there's no allowance for another view and anyone that disagrees with you, they're a racist or they're a socialist or they're just a hater. I want to tell you, democracy can't function that way. It cannot function that way when a system is based on discussion and analysis and compromise. And I, I want to tell you, I said three years ago, four years ago, well, yeah, four years ago, I said whomever is elected president in 2016 will be the most hated president in the history of the United States. And boy, you wouldn't believe the pushback I got over that. People that thought I was talking about Hillary Clinton said, I can't believe you're saying that about Hillary Clinton. And folks that thought I was talking about Donald Trump said, I can't believe you're talking about Donald Trump. He's a good man. She's a good woman. And I, 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 I got that, I don't know, two dozen times. And I said, you're not listening to me. I said, whoever is elected, whoever is elected, I'm telling you now, they will be the most hated the most vilified president that has ever served the United States of America. And I'm right. <laughs> Bow down, that's it. But it was kind of an easy prophecy because of the climate of rage. I knew that whoever won would be hated by half of America. Not just disagreed with, but hated. But loved ones, we've got to understand that spirit is trying to permeate every institution in America. It's trying to permeate the church in America. And the church is under a demonic assault in which we are being compelled to match the system of the world. And we are taking the position that anybody that disagrees with us is a hater or is stupid or is a manipulator, 
or is a deceiver, um, any, any white man that doesn't say the right thing is a racist, any black man that says the wrong thing is a socialist. And that's the way we live. And the enemy is trying to rob us of our peace and our unity so that we fall into that trap of rage. Do I get any amens on this? Justin, how many amens are we getting over there? You're doing better, I think. (laughs) The enemy is wanting to destroy our unity. He's wanting to destroy our peace. And he's wanting to destroy our sense of refreshing. And the way he's doing it, loved ones, this is just pastor telling you this is what we got to be aware of. He is disrupting your intimacy with the Lord. He is disrupting your fellowship with one another. You know what the enemy will do? He will take issues that we have not yet resolved in our lives and he'll have us bring that to the table and we'll blame the church, we'll blame the pastor, we'll blame our spouses, we'll blame our children, we'll blame our parents, we'll blame the state, we'll blame the government, we'll blame the New York Yankees or the you know, Clemson Tigers. We're, we're on a roll to find somebody to blame with all of our dysfunction and what is happening to us is that there's that washing machine Charlie that's just filling our lives full of lies and it's exhausting us. Some of us might actually be used as washing machine Charlies ourselves and we're not walking in peace and we're not walking in harmony. Let me tell you one more thing that I believe the Lord has shown me. He's not only wanting to destroy our unity And he does that by destroying our peace and our sense of refreshing. He wants to destroy our unity. Now, by the way, unity doesn't mean we all say the same thing uh, in the sense of have the same opinion on everything. But unity means when we disagree, we can do so lovingly without accusation, without assigning intention to someone's heart. And uh, I see such a rash of an epidemic of that through the church world. But he also wants to destroy our intimacy with the Lord. Can I tell you what I believe the enemy's trying to do? I believe the enemy wants to replace intimacy with information. Let me explain to you what I mean. We are in the information age. And there is not a lot of commitment to relationships out of which information comes. Uh, church membership is down, church growth is down, the assemblies of God are declining, if not for the Hispanic part of our church. You know, we, we talk about we're growing, but the fact of the matter is, is the average Anglo or white assembly of God church, we're in decline. Now, we're not an average Anglo, you know, white assembly of God church, but the average church is in decline. Now, there's a great revival in the Hispanic community. And we thank God for that. And they give us some positive numbers. But, but what, what, we, what we are failing to understand is that we, because of this age of rage, we are moving away from commitment. We are going to a place that can give us facts and information and not going to places that give us relationship. Do you know when I was a young man, uh, you know, back in the teens, Never mind. You're just not getting. 
Seriously, when I was a, when I was a young man uh, back in the 70s, the average age in America that young men got married, the average age was, uh, a, a give or take, right at 22 years old. I think it was 22 and three months, something like that. I don't have the notes in front of me. 22 years and three months, something like that. Right now, it's nearly 33. And you say, well, what's the reason for that? Well, I've got theories and I've got ideas. But i tell you one thing. Um, i tell you, Augustine was right when he said, Sexual passion drives us to marriage. Now that you say, that doesn't sound very spiritual. Well, Paul said the same thing. He said it's better to marry than to burn, you know. And Paul recognized there was spiritual passion. And Paul said the nature of life drives a young man to seek a wife and a young woman to seek a husband. The nature of life says we're sexual creatures and it drives us together. But we're in an age right now because of the internet we have all kinds of information that requires no intimacy. We have such access to pornography that one of the theories that the marriage, average marriage date uh, in a person's life has changed in, in males. It's not true in females, according to the study. But in males, it's 10 years later because a young man can have all the information and gratification he wants in pornography without having a relationship. And I didn't get a single amen. I didn't get a single amen. Um, but what I'm trying to say is what my pastor taught us about pornography, which when I was a young man, it was magazines. Um, I, I, you, you didn't have a lot of the video industry and, and uh, there was no internet or anything like that. But Printed magazines was the source of pornography. My pastor came in with a, with a pornographic magazine and um, he said, guys, the only time I've ever done this in my life. He said, I thumbed through this with my wife and he said, the advertising is right. It is erotic. It aroused me. It put my mind on all kinds of things. He says, this works for the pornography industry. Then he threw it in the trash can, thankfully. He said, but I'll tell you this. This will not keep your bed warm on a cold winter's night. What he was saying is this can provide information, but this doesn't provide intimacy. The, the same intimacy you might feel that picture provides for 60 million other people. Loved ones, I don't know if I'm doing a good job of communicating this or not, but the enemy is on a fight to destroy our sense of unity and he's on a fight uh, or picking a fight to destroy our sense of intimacy. And the enemy, if he can break down the structure of family, if he can break down the structure of family and churches, he will essentially win this battle. So what I want to tell you is as we begin this new year, watch out for every washing machine Charlie in your life. Watch out for everything that pulls you away from intimacy uh, and, and quality relationships and everything that pulls you away from unity because if you are the average Christian, I'll tell you what happens and it blows our minds because we're not expecting it. You will experience simultaneously the drawing, the anointing, the empowering of the Holy Spirit and at the same time you will find the most amazing collection of nitpicking 
of complaining, of offense, you know, people taking up offense. And all of this is designed to get you down off the mountain. One thing that we need to observe, when Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem, let me say this, there were two great building programs in that period of time in Israel's history. The first, when Israel went back, when Judah went back into Jerusalem, the first thing they did was restore the temple. Whenever our lives are set right, the first thing is always set right is our relationship with God. The temple gets fixed first. But right after the temple is fixed, the walls that represent your life, the walls have to be rebuilt. And this is what the people of Nehemiah's day learned. They learned that if we're going to get these walls up, this is how we've got to live. And it's in your notes. We live with a weapon in one hand and a tool in the other. You can't rebuild your life fighting all the time. You can't rebuild your life just focused on your walls all the time. You've got to have a weapon in one hand and a tool in the other. And that's what God is doing. He's helping us in the spirit to develop night fighter technology. He's teaching us to know how to build and fight simultaneously. And there are days we've just got to stand strong. And then there are days we've got to keep our head for the task. But gone are the days when we can afford to just let everything line up perfectly before we get involved. Pastor Glenn shared a word a couple of weeks ago. I wasn't even in here. It was in worship in here. But I asked him to summarize it so that the whole church could hear what the Lord showed him in the Spirit. And that's what we're going to close with today. Can we watch the video here from Pastor Glenn? Pastor Stephen asked me to share in summary with all of you prophetic word that I received during worship a couple weeks ago and we were in Brown Chapel we were late in the worship set and it seemed like there was a, a theme in our worship that day of the Lord just in his power and might silencing fear we were singing that that song that we all know so well we were singing the song tremble and there's a refrain on that song that says, Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, Jesus, you silence fear. And as we were singing that song, all of a sudden I just saw a mental picture in my mind. And as best I can describe it, it looked like a group of warriors, a large gathering of warriors who had weapons strapped to their sides. and swords and bows and arrows and shields and this this group of warriors were actually sitting there and they weren't engaged in the battle it's almost like God had furnished them given them everything that they needed but they didn't go into battle with what had been given to them and the application in that moment in worship was this yes the Lord is the one who silences the fear through the power of his might. Yes, the Lord is the one who fights our battles for us. The battle belongs to the Lord. But oftentimes we are asking God to silence the fear for us before we are willing to go into battle. Just like the series that Pastor taught us on King David, 
David silenced his fear by grabbing the, the smooth stones out of the stream and facing the giant in the valley. We oftentimes sing songs that talk about praise being our weapon. We have what we need to do battle and to silence fear. And the application of that prophetic word was this, that we need to stop waiting until God makes everything just right for us and comfortable and He silences our fear or silences our enemy and then we are willing to praise or then we are willing to take action and then we are willing to go into battle. No, oftentimes the Lord does that with us. Oftentimes the Lord accomplishes His will as we are willing to step forth in boldness, with faith and with courage in our hearts and say, Father, yes, the battle is yours, but you've given me these weapons and through my God, I will do valiantly. Through my God, I will tread down my enemies. So I wanted to just summarize this word as Pastor Stephen asked and have a chance to reiterate it to the entire church body. Amen, amen. Loved ones, this is what we need to do as we go today. We are entering a year of blessing. For some of us, it's unprecedented. I really believe that. I, and and I've, I've never been a proponent of just, you know, name it and claim it prophecies of everything's great and wonderful and I got the devil by the tail on the downhill drag singing tie yi yippee yi I've never been a proponent of that. I've always think that prophetic words need to be realistic. But I believe we are on the brink of a blessed year unlike any of us, have, some of us have ever seen and many of us have not seen it in a long, long time. But I also feel that before even the last year was over, the enemy knows he's outgunned. He knows we have the high ground. He knows we're going to win. But he is sending washing machine Charlies into our life to distract us, to discourage us, to rob us of our rest and to rob us of our refreshing to rob us of the sense of unity. And I just, I want to tell you that one of the things that I think God is doing, I didn't see it coming because I didn't see it in my own life for a long time, but one of the things the Lord is doing is He's going to give you a night fighter technology. He's going to teach you how to deal with the interruptions in your life. He's going to teach you how to deal with the contradictions in your life. He's going to teach you how to deal with the people that bring chaos and confusion into your life. He's going to teach you how to bring every thought and every accusation under control and under obedience to Him. He's going to teach you to do it. You've got to stand strong. You know, there are times when I preach that I asked somebody to pray for me before I preach. I said, I believe everything I'm about to preach. I believe everything that I'm saying is right. I believe everything I'm saying is biblical. But I feel like I'm losing on every front. I feel like I'm losing on every front. I feel like my grandson could do a better job of communicating the truth than I do. But God is saying you've got to rise up to that washing machine. You've got to rise up to those lies. And so don't let it discourage you when you feel that this is what God said, but this is where I'm at. I'm way over here. 
God is going to give you like he gave the United States Marine Corps in Guadalcanal. He's going to give you a technology to fight Washing Machine Charlie. He's going to give you a strategy to fight the accusation, uh, accusations of the enemy. Would you stand with me, please? Father, you are so good, and you're so good all the time. We are more than victors. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And what we're asking you to help us do, Father, is to stand strong in the face of contradictions. When truth seems counterintuitive, when truth seems like it's theoretically possible, but we're not living it out, help us to not be distracted by the washing machine. Help us to not be distracted by that motor that is intentionally set out of sync to disrupt us and take our rest. Father, the bottom line is we have to learn to deal with lies. We have to learn to deal with fear. And I appreciate the word of Pastor Glenn. We can't wait for you to deal with it. Sometimes you do that and we say praise God, but we've got to learn to fight and to function even when everything within us says this is not going to work. That's not a silly faith statement. That's a profound faith statement. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. We want to open the altars. Pastor Justin may give you a different direction in the sanctuary. But here in Brown Chapel, we're going to ask the worship team just to begin to bring us into the presence of God. We want to ask you to find a place to pray. We want to find you a place to just seek the Lord. And guys, I want to tell you, some of us are at the point just before victory where we have... The situation is David where we have to say, Lord, teach my hands to war. Teach my mind to think. Teach my mouth to work. I'm not going to take my progress reports from hell any longer. In Jesus' name. I love you so much. Thank you. Be here next week. The altar area is open for you. I love you. God bless you.